What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Imani Perry, author of South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. The Deep South Freedom Movement changed the country and the world. And so we missed the opportunity of understanding how, with all of that set against them, were they able to imagine differently? We need to be inspired by that. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Today's guest is Amani Perry. Amani Perry is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she also teaches gender and sexual studies, law and public affairs, and jazz studies. She is the author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, and several other books. She's here with us today to talk about her latest, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of the Nation. Amani Perry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you. So excited about this conversation, and there's so much inside of this book to talk about, uh, but then we would be here for hours instead of the one that I have. So we're going to touch just a bit um, in each of the three sections of the book, which you organized as origin stories, then the solidified South, and then finally water people. And why don't you just kick us off by talking a little in general about the way you organize the book and why? Yeah, I mean, so it's organized both kind of geographically and historically. Mm-hmm. So the, it's sort of the upper South and then the deep South and then the Gulf Coast South and also inclusive of some of the Caribbean. And, and part of the point of that is that there are Souths, plural, more than even three, but that the geography of the particular part of the South shaped so much of its culture, what crops were grown there, what people came there and the like. Um, but it's also, you know, the the chronological part is about when the various parts of the South were settled. So we've had sort of wonderful discussions over the last couple of years about related to the 1619 project that, you know, the origin point of the country being in Jamestown in 1619. So that's one that upper South is as part of, of, of a story of the British origin of the country. But of course, if you trace the origin to, European encounters with the Americas, you go back even further so that the, along the Gulf Coast, and you include places like Havana in the book, then you're talking about 1500 in Florida and the like. And so the idea is to give a sense of sort of all these different roots and origin points that shape who we are as a country based upon the history of this region that was both so abundant and so cruel. And, and even deadly. To that point about, about the different uh, regions, even within, right, Southern region, you, you traveled uh, to these places. Yes. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that. And, and I want to talk, um, I guess, where you started. Yeah. West, West Virginia. Right. Well, you know, and I'm, I am in and out of the South all the time. And so, but one place that I am not frequently is West Virginia. So it felt appropriate if I was going to kind of defamiliarize myself with the South to start in West Virginia. Um, And it's this place that is so distinct and it's so storied, right? Like we hear, you know, all of these stories about 
about miners and about Appalachia and about its culture and a lot of stereotypes and also that it is the West Virginia is the whitest of the southern states. It also has all kinds of social ills and ailments. And so I said I was going to go and then people kept saying to me, are you sure? Like you comfortable as a black woman traveling there by yourself, which also made it kind of an adventure (laughs) um, of sorts. Um, And, you know, what I found, I had a, a, you know, I went, started at Harper's Ferry where John Brown led his famous raid um, and that felt kind of safe. But I had these really powerful encounters and uh, one of which was with a Confederate reenactor. Yeah which was just so great for me because I had assumed there were certain kinds of interactions I was not likely to have. But he spoke very frankly about, you know, his commitment to reenactment. Um, And it was, and, and I'll say this about it, you know, I could not for the life of me figure out, I still can't, why anybody would want to be a Confederate soldier. right? (laughs) But I do know what it means to want to stand inside history. And I was like, this man Mm -hmm. is very different from me, obviously. We share something about wanting to get our feet in the grounds of history and wanting to feel it. Um, We just want to feel different different things, clearly. But that's, you know, we're struggling over, over that history to this very day. And so um, so it was, it was profound. It was a really profound experience. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of fascinated me about your engagement with him, because I've had those same sort of like curious fascinations about people that do those reenactments um, mm-hmm. and, and what that means about who they are. And um, I'm, I guess, what uh, Southerners would call a Yankee. I was born very, very much in the North, Las Vegas, Nevada. You can't get that much further away. Um, but this dude like was an educated... Oh yeah, get archivist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I found that I found that super fascinating. The other thing, um, Amani, that I found fascinating. So, I took Taekwondo for many many years when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I'm not a black belt is because the conference that I had to go to to take my test was in Texas. Uh huh. And everything I knew about the South was through studying, you know, Bull Connor and the Civil Rights Movement and that that piece of the history. And so when at first I read, right, that you too had had reservations about going to, to West Virginia, I was like, oh, I thought she was born in Birmingham. And I was like, she was born in Birmingham. So I just, I, I would love to talk a little bit about that fear, right, that I think a lot of us as Black folks carry. I mean, I'm glad I got over it because that's where most of us are now. And I think it's a very real thing. Yeah. I mean, I think this is important, right? Because part of my thought was I'd always been kind of huffy about the fact that people were afraid to go to Birmingham, right? Because it's my home. It's a city. It's a, And particularly when folks in Boston, where I grew up, I was like, you're in Boston. You're afraid of Birmingham? I mean, Boston has a reputation as one of the more racist cities in the country. Um, but, you know, I and yet I had that feeling in West Virginia. So it was one of I, I tried to give moments where people could see that I tried to be transparent, you know. So my own biases, I tried to do some undoing of them, my own assumptions. Even as I was confronting others' assumptions, I had to confront my own. Now, you know, the fear I think is warranted, but the fear is warranted everywhere. 
you know, mm. you know, these, there's lots of places in this country that are unsafe. But, you know, as a kid, I also spent a lot of time in Chicago. Cicero wasn't safe. You know, the, some of the suburbs south, you know, downstate in Illinois wasn't necessarily safe. Um, and so, you know, so that feeling I think is, is warranted, but West Virginia is so stereotyped and it was an unfamiliar place for me. Right. And so that's part of what happens when we have these stereotypes of places and we don't know them, we just go by the stereotype. So just as I wanted to take people into places that I knew were different from the stereotypes like Birmingham, I also wanted to go places where I would have my assumptions challenged. Mm. Um, and that was really um, meaningful um, in part. And one of the things that I experienced in West Virginia that was um, more of an, an emotional register than anything else is that I just blended in, right? And yeah. that's something about um, most of the South. I mean, I had some. Ex I had an experience in the Shenandoah Valley in a restaurant where I very clearly did not blend in. But that, you know, when I was walking around in Walmart and when I was in Waffle House, there's no, there was no, you know, it was easy to ease into the place because there are places where Black people are assumed. That's something about this. I assumed to be part of the fabric right. of the Southern region. And so that was also a kind of interesting um, uh, encounter. I just watched that new show on Hulu, I think, uh, Dope Sick, about the opioid crisis in the Appalachia. Yeah. And I, I got to be honest, right? Uh, before that series, the most attention I'd paid to the opioid crisis was sort of the snide commentary, right? About, well, when there's crack cocaine and black folks, nobody cared. So why am I looking in that direction? Um, not only does the series address the opioid crisis, it also addresses uh, cru the cruelty of the mining industry. And the fact that these are a group of people, right, who for all of our stereotypes uh, of them, it's because of them we have street lights and, oh, I don't know, steel. And <laughs> like literally the backbone of the country and treated so horribly. Which yeah. got me to thinking um, about the, the intersection, of course, of, of race and class, but uh, more specifically how white supremacy as the primary, the dominant governing ideology of this nation impacts all of us. And where in that, right, where in the mountains of Appalachia are the organizing opportunities? Yeah. No, I mean, this is, this is, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because it's such an important, what's such an important part of the book for me was to one point to how the history of minors is one of an incredible, like, tradition of organizing and protest that has been so central to American, the American labor movement in general, and also of devastation of the destruction of people's bodies. And then now of, of loss, right? The loss of industry. So as you were saying, all these people who've given us so much and who now have so little, and there are still organizers who are working there um, but we also are confronting, I think, you know, the opioid crisis is um, is really in some ways like sort of a, a, a reckoning with what it means to exploit people and then snatch everything away from them and then expect them to make do some kind of way. And people for whom the message has always been the only thing you have is your whiteness, right? Yes. And yeah. then 
blocked for that, right? And that actually being an impediment to, you know, to multiracial organizing historically and so many times. I mean, there's a real parallel, and this is just a bit of an aside, but I think it's important because I think we're going to get the, understand this later. There's also a parallel between the opioid crisis and what's happening with lean, um, mm-hmm. purple drink and all of these things that is not yet being paid attention to, I think, again, because it's disproportionately in Black communities, but it's a very similar type of addiction cycle. Mm-hmm. And it comes, it has a similar origin, except for Black people, often it's, you know, the travel, going to ERs where they give you codeine syrup and then getting, and that being mixed and with other kinds of drugs. But this, this uh, a, a kind of, you know, a comprehensive kind of depressiveness that settles when people are living on the margins. Right. Uh, I have very, no, I have nowhere to turn, you know? Right. And I wonder if you talk a bit too about, uh, we're gonna get into the trauma piece later, um, but but I wonder if you talk about the evolution of racism in that part of the country. And, and what I mean by that, right, is as jobs did go overseas because that's what capitalism does. Yes. Um, looking for people to blame. Right. Well, that's always, I mean, it. in some ways that is a repeated cycle, right? So. If you look in documentation of the late 19th century, um, there or or if you you actually could start during the antebellum period, but through the late 19th century, one of the conflicts that you have around organizing around mining is when they bring in first enslaved people or either black people who are convicts into mining. That prompts some strikes because it's seen as a debasement of the work, right? Mm. So, you know, so these, so you have this structure where there's two tiered systems to preserve a little bit of the benefit of whiteness, similar things in terms of sharecropping versus tenancy, right? Little bit more freedom for white tenant farmers, not much, but enough that they can preserve a, spa- a conception that whiteness is superior, right? Or where they can live, right? So you can live in a raggedy house, but you can live on the white side of town versus, you know, um, uh, versus uh, in the black bottom. These 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 distinctions that were drawn between workers actually, you know, are are create greater vulnerability for all poor and working people. It also is the case that then labor organizing gets complicated. So there's this classic text. Um, of the civil rights movement coming of age in Mississippi, right? Written by Ann Moody. And she tells a story, a young black woman, and she tells a story of working in a chicken plant and that that work, they black they don't hire black people until there's a strike of white workers. And then black people come in as, as scabs and how horrific the conditions of the chicken plant are. So, so much so that by the end of her time working there, she never eats chicken again. Now we have a similar dynamic now um, with catfish and chicken work in the deep South, right? And particularly in Mississippi where undocumented people are now doing that work, right? Because they have less leverage than those who are citizens. So it, it, it literally just repeats these sort of multi-tier systems of exploitation. Um, and as long as, and this is part of the point of the book, right? As long as we actually invest in this idea that some some inherent superiority 
you know, based upon race or citizenship or identity, it actually makes it very hard to address the depth of injustice for working people. Yeah, and that actually helps me um, segue going backwards just a little bit because um, in the introduction, uh, you talk a bit, I believe it was the introduction or the author's note, you talk about you know, folks relegating the South to the sort of backwards. And the reason why I'm going here now is because I think the Appalachians where folks sort of like, that's where it's the most intense, right? Is those people there. That's in air quotes, not my thoughts. Um, where they get the South to this sort of backwards. And I, I think you use the word stumbling. Yes. Place. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love it if you just chat a bit about uh, why that, uh, that, assumption, that stereotype, that bigotry even, uh, is dangerous or misguided in terms of both where the South sits in the shaping of America as we know her today, but I think even more importantly, where the South could possibly sit if we continue this course in the shaping of America's future. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting that um, it is presented often as backwards, even though it has always been at the very cutting edge, right? So if we think about, for example, the con- all of the t- sort of uh, innovations that actually led to the production of wealth and prosperity in this country, right? You have to start with the South, whether you're talking about tobacco or rum, and it, rum, tobacco, and then of course, cotton, which makes the nation um, a global power, that which it is able to become a global power because of this this vast you know body of unfree enslaved black labor in the south and the conditions of the region you know facilitate that and then sugar to a lesser extent but then you also have things like you know mining which is also you know up here in Pennsylvania but but the mining industry is concentrated in the south oil concentrated in the south um and so all of these industries, and so you have the creation of a car culture, you have global politics and particular negotiations with the Middle East, the stage is set for that by Texas. And then on top of all of that, you have the, the kinds of relationships that are created as part of that harnessing of the land and labor and work in the South that spread out, right? So Every time someone talks about something like gentrification, this notion that you move people out, right? That you exploit people, exploit people, you suck all of the wealth out, all of the money out of them so they can barely get by, and then you move people out and you move people in. I mean, it's it it absolutely is is a pattern that is set by the settling of the Deep South. This idea that you can have people who are worked nearly to death with nothing to show for it is something that comes as a sort of norm out of that region. It's interesting even today to think about things like, you know, crypto and Bitcoin. Where are they going? They're going to Appalachia, Mm. right? To create these, because they need these huge spaces to run all of these computers (laughs) and destroy the environment yet again, right? So it's always at the cutting edge. I mean, even Wall Street. I, you know, I, I saw, I wrote a little bit about this, not in the book, but in my newsletter um, for the Atlantic about the Lehman Brothers play that was on Broadway because the Lehman Brothers, the investment bank that was responsible primarily, you know, for the 2009 crisis, they start as cotton traders in Alabama. You know, 
Wall Street is built was built on slavery in the United States, right? In the Deep South. Um, that's how they built their their wealth. And so the depiction of backwards is a terrible subversion of it setting the stage again and again. But, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm long-winded, but I do want to get to the last part of your question, which is so important. It's also the place where people who were so incredibly vulnerable, you know, without the benefits of citizenship, without control over their labor, without had in unbelievable freedom dreams that actually transformed the country, right? These extraordinary freedom. And that's something to learn from as well. The movement, that the Deep South Freedom Movement, changed the country and the world. And so we missed the opportunity of understanding how, with all of that set against them, were they able to imagine differently? We need to be inspired by that. Yeah, this might be be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> but you know, when when the Ferguson uprisings happened, there was this saying that that, that came out: uh, "This is not your grandparents' civil rights movement." Yeah, yeah. And I'm a little older, right? <laughs> um, and, and I get it. I mean, I get, uh, and you know, I, I I'm in relationship with a lot of those folks who were young folks then, um, and when I read that or heard that, you know, the images of the dogs and the fire hoses and the nooses from trees. And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this, this is not that. Right. Um, that was a much different landscape. And thinking about what made up the folks that stood in the face of that kind of terror, um, I think is something that, yeah, we definitely miss about um, the, the South. Often. You know, also, I think I, I was so upset when I saw those t-shirts. <laughs> like, I, I I'm not alone. Right on. <laughs> and, you know, and I, grew, I, I'm a movement baby. I grew up surrounded by folks who were in the movement. Um, and it just felt to me to be so um, both insulting and ignorant. But I ultimately attributed it to the way that civil rights movement history is taught so poorly. Yeah. You know, people, just, I think young people, they just don't know. They don't have a frame of reference. They see, you know, the March on Washington and the March across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And they think that it was just sort of a res- respectable, please, sir, may we have some rights, right? Like a kind of Oliver Twist moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, really what it, what it strategy and the violence and the, confrontations and the, um, and, and, and all of the death, you know, um, so much. Yeah. We have to do, we have to do, we have to do better by them such that they know that that's actually not cute. Yeah, I I, I agree. I just, uh, not too long ago interviewed David Dennis. Oh yes. Yeah. And, and his new book, right. With his father. And, um, I grew up with his parents. Right yeah. on. Um, but even as a right, even as a student, I consider myself a student of the movement and of movement history, right? Because that informs future organizing. Yeah. Okay. 
I am Kat Brooks in conversation with Amani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she also teaches gender and sexual studies, law and public affairs, and jazz studies. I want to talk about that, I think, if we have time. I wonder what jazz studies is. Um, her most recent book, however, is South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. And I'm going to um, skip ahead, actually, my question list, because one of the things that you talk about in the Birmingham chapter, because we're talking about the stock of the folks in the South that fought for our liberation, um, it is, you know, the way that the story of the Klan and, and such is told often is just sort of, you know, white folks running amok and murdering us. But, you know, you talk uh, briefly about the Black men who protected their homes and their family and women. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. with guns unapologetically. And, and I would love for you to um, expound a bit upon that. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that um, I'm so glad that um, this story is being told a little bit more fully now. Um, but this sort of mythology that nonviolent resistance was what everybody did and was always the way. And so, you know, the elders in my family and community talk about how, you know, for folks who lived in Titusville on Dynamite Hill, the area that was subject to the most sort of targeted racial violence, the men would go out at night to patrol, to protect their neighborhoods. They describe guns being everywhere. They describe being armed to protect the civil rights protesters who were engaged in nonviolent resistance, right? Because it was very likely, and not just was possible, it was like, I mean, you know, it's important to remember the early 60s, the FBI was basically hands off when it came to what was happening to civil rights workers. They were not intervening when they were subject to violence. They could have very easily just been mowed down, right? With little, so so black people had to protect them. (laughs) And one of the ways they protected them was by being armed, was also by hiding them, putting people in safe houses and, um, and feeding them and telling them which roads to go on. And so this idea, there was a very sophisticated strategy and it included, um, uh, defense, right? So it's not sort of armed revolution, but it's definitely part of the, in that being armed was part of um, the history of the movement, even in the moments of nonviolent resistance. And it is also part of why I think today it it is complicated in the South. I mean, I'm a person, I'm a firm believer in gun control, but it is complicated in the Black South to talk about um, gun control because people see it as uh, necessary for self-protection. No, no, I get it. Listen, I'm a gun owner, and I say that on every show I do where this comes up. I'm a gun owner, and I struggle, and I'd love to hear your thoughts around this, and it's also a good segue to where I want to go next. Uh, I, I struggle with telling Black folks that they shouldn't have firearms in this country. Like, I just don't know how I say that with a straight face, because when I go to the gun range, yeah. Amani, it's... Uh, the white grandmas, grandpas, aunties, uncles, and their four-year-old little girl. Yep. Who's an yep. expert shot, right? Like, No, I mean, I know. And I talk to, you know, sometimes I wind up talking to my cousins <laughs> about this. And I'll say, you know, we can't, the rea- you know, and I'm like, if they're, because they will say things like, well, what if they just decide to come and start killing us? Which is, which sounded more far-fetched 
some years ago than it does now, frankly, because between January 6th and Buffalo, all these events, you think there are people who are preparing for, who, who seem to be very unchecked in this society, who are preparing for a sort of mass racist acts of violence. And I, you know, my response is, they have so many more guns than we do and they have more people. And then sure. one of my cousins, I was always like, yeah, but I could, if they come trying to get me and mine, I could take some of them out before they. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's where my brain goes to. <laughs> but, I, but I guess um, I think the issue, I do think it's a, it's a serious conversation and it's part of why, you know, I think that we have to have a more nuanced discussion that is inclusive of, why is there why is there so much gun manufacturing mm-hmm. and also why is there so much unchecked violence such that people don't feel like they would be safe without a firearm i think that's a that's a different kind of conversation yeah well if we ever get to have it i would add and and why are the gun regulation proposals that come up not deep enough to actually do what it is we all want them to do well that's yeah that's real Let's unpack that, but not in this interview because I have other things I want to talk to you about. So, um, uh, this might feel like a bit of a digression, but it's not really because uh, in this chapter about Birmingham, you talk about your grandmother, hmm. and um, I, I, I wonder if you start to just tell us about her, how she yeah. shaped you. This is yeah. sort of multi-part, right? Um, but also like how Black grannies have shaped so many of us. Yes. Because I I couldn't figure out. So when Buffalo happened, Amani, you know, I deal in black death every day. Um, And not to sound callous about it, but right, we we put the feelings in a box and on we go because the work has to get done. Mm -hmm. I cried for 10 days. Mm. Like I could, look, I'm chirping now. I couldn't stop. And what finally hit me is that because, you know, several of them were our grannies. That's right. That's right. Then maybe that's what it was for us. Yes, that's right. So yeah, I'm going to turn that over to you now. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, this is, I've been thinking about this for decades because, you know, people will say, you know, grandmothers are always precious, but there is something very particular about the role of the grandmother in Black families. And my grandmother, we called Madea, which is short for mother dear, right? And I always say for me, she was the definition of the word mother. You know, she she gave birth to 12 children. She raised many more. When her children went out in the world and then they had to get themselves together to come back, they came back. And so many of us who were her grandchildren, including me, we lived in her home. You know, she was, and matriarch is, is not a good word because it has, it is, it, it has this sort of tinge of judgment with it, but she was a grand, she was a grand, a grandmother. Right. Um, And, and, and for us, you know, these are the people who devote, their lives in so many ways. They work, right? Um, they labor outside of the home and then they devote their lives to making a place for us. This is the woman who taught me the rituals of grace, even if you didn't have a lot, how to find pleasure in small, precious things, yes. how to organize your life, right? My grandmother loves straws. 
you know, she loved straws. She loved a small, a small bowl of watermelon. You know, we would go out in the back and pick up pecans from the yard in the back. Um, you wash, you know, she, she, you washed with a fresh washcloth every day because she didn't want bacteria on you. You know, there's this, this kind of <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, that was just a kind of a kind of elegance and a and most of all, she taught me to have high self regard, right? And you know, for a woman who you know who was born in the throes of the era of lynching and Jim Crow and raised children in Bombingham, you know, in the mm-hmm. segregated South, and who cleaned for white people, um, and then later worked at the hospital to have enormous self-regard and to teach us self-regard and a kind of dignity that had nothing to do with where the larger society saw you, but how you saw yourself was just essential. I have carried her lessons through with me everywhere. Um, and I, you know, and I, and so I, I, she had that sort of precious role, I think that our grannies have in general. And for me, I feel like everything that I do in this life is a direct testament, everything of value, right? Not the stuff yeah, that I uh-huh. do, not so great. <laughs> but everything I do, it's an effort to 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 honor what she poured into me. Yeah. You know, you uh, you 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 say in this chapter, quote: "We Alabamans have the highest rates of mental illness and the lowest rates of medical care. Inside home, terrors happen and repeat. This is what is neatly called trauma." Mm-hmm. You're talking about white Alabamans, black Alabamans, all of the above. And if all of the above, I'm wondering if you have any thought about how the terrors are segregated by race. Oh. You know, so this is really interesting. Tell me if this is what you're what you're getting at. And if not, I can modify. Because I think one of the things that is really important to me for us collectively to understand. When you have scenes like a plantation scene, right? And I mean scenes where not only incredible violence, but ripping children away from their parents and um, you know, maiming people and debasing people and raping people as part of the, not just the daily life, but the economy upon which everything rests. That stuff doesn't wash off easily, you know, and it affects white people too. You can't have that kind of violence and ugliness and then have it not seep into your own segregated family arena. (laughs) You can't, and and it echoes, Um, it echoes and people are hurt and wounded. And we have lots of, I mean, I think this is part of the, the, to be completely, completely honest, part of the, the intensity of religion in the South has to do with all of this ugliness and the history. Mm-hmm. You know, because people are trying to find a way to sort of wash, you know, pe- there's all these, you know, those lines in gospel songs about washing oneself clean. People want to get away from all of that. Um, it doesn't, you know, off, church can make it worse. But there's an effort to, 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 grapple with this thing that, you know, these, these forms of suffering. So I think it's, 
it's everywhere. I think there's a compounding effect for Black folks of having to deal with racism in addition to having to do with deal with inadequate health care and hunger and the like. But on the other hand, I mean, we we have this way of being, and I talk about secrecy in the book too, yeah. of 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 using shame and secrecy as a, as a mechanism for avoiding, you know, how we human suffering and how we are in, complicit in making each other suffer. And so I do, I did kind of want to open some of that up in a way it, that would allow us to sort of talk about it and hopefully think about what does it mean to address it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm horrified at the lack of adequate mental health care in general, but just for an example, now, where we are now, post-COVID, in the wake of the of all of the, the deaths we saw in Black Lives Matter and the mass shooting we have now, we people, most people have nowhere to turn. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really good uh, segue to my next question, because I've been spending a lot of time, you know, as, as we age as organizers, our, our thoughts sort of shift, I think, to, mm. to, to more long-term yeah. Right, like it's the the young younger folks can do the reactionary work because it's just as important. Yeah, um, but perspective changes as years pass. Yeah, so like really trying to think about what could actually impact this system. Anything. <laughs> so right. um, I've been thinking a lot about Black folks and trauma, and I have this theory, right, that that Black people we spend so much time compartmentalizing trauma, generational mm-hmm. trauma, current trauma, microaggressions, macroaggressions hunger, poverty, houselessness, incarceration, right? I mean, it's so much every day that literally we spend so much time putting that stuff into boxes and holding it there Mm. so that we can just get up in the morning and go to work or feed our children, like mundane stuff that folks who aren't under that kind of pressure take for granted almost. Yeah. That it literally, I think, like in the same way the Panthers understood that, you know, hunger, et cetera, inhibited your ability to fight for your liberation. I think trauma for us acts as the same way. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting you say that. I wish I had um, written down her name. I saw a young woman on TikTok the other day saying, yeah, yeah, I know we need a revolution, but when are we going to have the care revolution, which sounds Mm -hmm. consistent with what you're saying. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what if what if there's a sort of internal decision to do the care work, the tending that, you know, that piece, I do think, I think you're right. I do I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, we've doubled down on it, my organization, and and are are focused on that, right? The healing piece as much as organizing. Cause I think if we don't do that, yeah. Band-aids on gunshot wounds. Well, you know, can I say, I, I said something a couple of years ago that irritated some folks, but I also think, you know, now that you, what you're saying actually makes me feel like this is actually, what you're describing is much closer to what I was trying to dis, to say. But I was talking about, we have to become the kind of people who are fit for the world that we want to believe in. Mm. And I, I think that's it, right? We're actually... We don't know. We we have to learn how to be in relation to each other in ways that would allow us to actually sustain a more equitable set of arrangements, right? And that is healing work. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. 
All right, one more thing I want to explore in this section of the book, and I'm, I'm clocking my time, um, but but this fascinated me. Um, maybe because I'm born and raised in Las Vegas, right, where women uh, are bought and sold <laughs> under the cover of darkness, or because now I live in Oakland, where black little girls are bought and sold in broad daylight. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of weird that I move like from one of the top five cities on the, the sex trafficking circuit to another one. Um, but you say that surveys of porn searches show interracial desire is deepest where Jim Crow was strongest. Mm-hmm. And I would, uh, I'd love if you talk a bit about the persistence yeah. of this, I think uh, what you call it is the sexual economy of the plantation. Yeah. I remember that era when um, the first period when televangelists would have these moments, sort of these popular conservative, you know, Christian evangelists would have these moments where they were exposed. And those moments of exposure, whether, you know, they were having, you know, same gender relationships or what have you, and they would cry. They had this whole choreography. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, people would be like, oh my goodness. And for me, it was like, this is not surprising because what those conservative forces are trying to control is not the existence of the relationship. It's about the, the, it's about domination. It's about where, who is recognized and who isn't, who is controlled, who can, who gets to have the right of consent and who doesn't, right? Who gets, who get, and that's very much plantation logic, dominating people, controlling people, exploiting people sexually, right? And so they're not actually talking about, right, what people can't do. They're talking about what gets recognized as acceptable and legitimate for, for showing off at the Sunday picnic versus what's behind mm. the doors, right? And wanting to keep certain sectors of the society behind closed doors for absolute domination, right? Absolute cruelty. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, so the 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 the, the porn searches is one thing and then the, the content, but but certainly trafficking. Um, Atlanta is another location. Right. Yeah. Um, these places where, you know, um, it, it, it is, and this is really important, I think, too, because the way, as we've talked about, the conversation around sexual violence tends not to go in those places, right? Tends to focus on, you know, the people, the sexual violence that happens in, quote unquote, polite society. The college campus, right? And it's no less. I'm not saying it's 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 less heinous, but it's it it communicates who we think it matters who is subject to sexual violence, right? And again, it, so it gets zoned. You know who who the large society is supposed to care about, but there are entire sectors of the population that are always vulnerable to sexual violence, always vulnerable, right? Um, and without remedy. Right. And this is, you know, in other work that I've that I've done, I've talked about, you know, police engaged in sexual violence. What does it mean for undocumented people right. subject to sexual? Right. And, and 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 certainly and certainly poor black girls in the society. Well, I'm going to take it one step further and I, I might irritate somebody to use your words. Um, but I, I'm, <laughs> I, and I'll preface this by saying I'm currently dating a white man. First time in 20 plus years. Mm hmm. And we see more and more of that, right? Sisters of white men. Um, I can say for me, our first year was the constant check-in for where's the fetish? 
Um, is this a fetish? Mm-hmm. What are you reenacting? Are you reenacting? Right? Like, are you with me for me? Or have yeah. you inherited your ancestors perception of me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really interesting conversation. I have not just with myself, but with him. <laughs> Right. Well, this is why it's so interesting because whenever people talk about interracial dating, one of the, you know, when they do research, Black women are the least interested, even yeah. though we have some of the lowest rates of marrying. And, right. And, right. But it's, but it's this history. It's this history that is carried, that is carried as a form of trauma that we live with that makes it very hard. Um, and it makes it harder, I think, that because the society hasn't grappled with it. You know, if there had been some sort of transformative moment in terms of how Black women are are seen and treated in the society, maybe it wouldn't be so hard. Um, But it certainly still is. I'm Kat Brooks in conversation with Amani Perry about her most recent book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of the nation. So I'm, I'm running out of time, but I do want to touch on section three water people. And I want to start with ask you to talk about the flying Africans. Yes. So there's this folk tale that I, I just love and it has different variations, but it's essentially um, that, you know, a group of Igbo had were enslaved or brought to um, the Sea Islands, uh, St. Simon's, and they And they look and see a plantation scene and they see, you know, the black people working on the plantation and the white folks ruling them and the cruelty and that they turn back around to the water and walk back to the water. Now, some, you know, the the, the folktale version has they they walked into the water and then they flew back to West Africa. There's historical documentation that describes it as a mass suicide, but it's always told in terms of the story of the Igbo um, and that it is a story about that is that is shared about a refusal and, and the refusal to submit. And I think it's really powerful that African-Americans along the Gulf Coast have, have held on to this story as a kind of lore about this, there's a tradition of refusing this, right, condition um, that is something that is, you know, that is cherished, even though, you know, there's also great nobility in holding on, right, and fighting and enduring, right, and raising your children to fight back. But yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I live with that story um, in my mind. So, you know, so often to think about the, just even the visual, because it, it did happen, right? Whether the, one believes the folk version of the historic documentation, it is, it, it did happen. Right. Can you talk a, a bit more about like Gullah Geechee culture and, and how that resistance um, not only remains today, but also the forces that are pushing up against it? Right. Uh, yeah. You talk about gentrification. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a massive displacement. You know, the Gullah Geechee folks are, are working to they have worked mightily to preserve their language. They have the most sort of distinctive. I mean, black Americans have, you know, African-American vernacular English is a language by definition of linguists. Right. In the sense that it has an internal record, it has a structure, et cetera. 
there are versions though there that are more distinctive, right? So, you know, Gullah is distinctive, right? And um it 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 is because on the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, um, there was a structure of slavery that was more akin to what you saw in the Caribbean where there were absentee slaveholders. So it was just black folks, right? And so they preserved sort of their language much more um kind of it remained more intact. But of course, over time, there was not a lot of work opportunities. There younger generations left. And so there were fewer and fewer people who spoke the language, just like Creole in New Orleans, right? Fewer and fewer people who speak, but they've worked to preserve the language and to preserve the culture. And they have beautiful cultural institutions, but now they are facing displacement because, you know, now the resort communities come down, you know, and they, and, and, Folks who had to leave land and so because they needed work opportunities and and no longer own their property are now, in a sense, and many people are sort of permanently displaced from home, which, again, is similar to New Orleans post-Katrina. It is sort of the way sort of, you know, the the, the vultures come down and see a lot of money making opportunity and, and people's homelands are taken yet again. Disaster um, capitalism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's it. It's disaster capitalism. And it it's it's disasters like hurricanes, but it's also the sort of the disaster of white supremacy. Right? <laughs> All right. I, I only have a couple of minutes and there's um two things that, that I want to touch on before I let you go. I, I rarely get to end my interviews on a high note, so I'm gonna take this opportunity. So yeah. the one is so I understand and I have a long um I've long used a capital B when talking about black people. And and feel free to talk a bit about your logic there too. But what I'm I'm really fascinated by is the decision to also capitalize white when yes. talking about white folks. And yes. I'll just say, like for me, as you know, as a writer, yes. it's always felt like a, a reclamation of power to give them a little W. And I I just love to hear your thoughts about that a bit because I I won't lie, like when I saw it on the page, I was like, what's happening? Look, I shout out to Echo for letting me do this because most publishers <laughs> we have not like, no right. <laughs> But it felt so important in this book to me because part of the thing that I think often happens is that white people, particularly progressive white people, evade the power of white, right? And, you know, it is the thing that made all this what it is. Mm. What whiteness is what created this thing, this category of blackness. We, we, we made it something different, beautiful, right, than the ascription, but they put out the designations, right? Um, and, and they organized the world around whiteness as, an, as a concept and orchestrated things. And so for me, I could not tell the story of the South without the visual reminder. This was about, this was about making white, not just European, white means something here. This project, this structure, slavery, Jim Crow, right? All of the various kinds of exploitation, lynching, right? Is about making something of whiteness. And it, and that thing that has made of it, that it, you know, that it made was very destructive to the other proclaimed principles like liberty and equality and equal protection of the law and due process, all those ideas. And so I just wanted it to be very honest. I wanted visually the book to be very honest about how all this happened. Um, mm. and, 
And then to understand, for me, then to capitalize Black, it was a confrontation with that. You know? Ah, okay. Right? It's an answer back to that is what, what it meant to claim for Black people to can't claim Blackness. Yeah. I mean, I appreciated it. I appreciated the thought and, and the explanation in the book and um, was super looking forward though, to having that question, writer to writer. Like, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I like that, the, the confrontation of it. All right. Last question, Amani Perry. Yes. Talk to me about dancing oh, with yeah. Jones. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So um, oh, now I'm going to get emotional. So Bessie Jones um, was this incredible woman who was one of the Sea Island singers from St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia. And she had, as a young woman, had various careers, including being a bootlegger. And there's quite a bit in the book about, not a ton, but about moonshine. Um, and she was, was sort of uh, a folklorist. And she she kept she retained all these traditional folk songs and dances and clap songs and the like and so when I was a little girl and I you know I wrote I've written about this in various places including South to America but always a sort of persistent homesickness from the South when I moved up north but she would come up north to do performances at sort of at black community centers and schools and the like and my mother always took me. And it was, you know, just having her gaze, you know, and dancing with her, mm-hmm. um, even as a little girl, it was just such an incredible joy and honor, right? You know, these moments with elders where you just feel them infusing you with the tradition um, and with love and a way of knowing that is, you can find in books too, but it has this kind of emotional, visceral quality that you never lose. That was what it was like um, uh, to be with her. So I, that had to be in the book. I just cherished those moments so deeply. I am Kat Brooks. We have been speaking with Amani Perry. Amani Perry is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she also teaches gender and sexual studies, law and public affairs, and jazz studies. She's the author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, among several other books. Today, we've been talking about her latest, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of the Nation. Amani Perry, thank you so much for this conversation. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.